Dear Lord, thank you so much for this precious time, for a time while we don't only remember, but we rejoice, we proclaim, we worship. We recognize your presence in a special way here as we do as you have commanded. And now I pray, Lord, that you would open the hearts of our people that they might receive from you. Give us ears that hear and a heart that's ready to receive. And if there's one that doesn't know you, I pray that you draw them by the power of your spirit this morning. And may your name be praised. In the name of Jesus, we pray all these things according to your riches and glory through Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, we're going to be in the book of Philemon here in just a moment. And I've titled this Slavery and the Art of Holy Persuasion. And you go, what do those two topics have to do with each other? Where well, I, I want us to kind of look at both. You, I don't think you can throw the topic of slavery out without talking about it. Uh, there are a lot of people in, a lot of people uh, will use slavery as one of the instances to say that Christianity uh, is not uh, friendly toward all, is that uh, the Bible is pro-slavery, and that absolutely is not the case. Matter of fact. Paul makes a pretty radical statement in Galatians chapter 3, uh, 28, when he says this, and it just clarifies. As a matter of fact, the text we'll look at is a clarification of this. Romans, excuse me, Galatians 3, 28 says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I think that's an important scripture for us to understand and ascertain. That he's not, first of all, let me say this, he's not talking about functionally. He's not talking about in roles. Yes, different people play different roles. In family, uh, there are members of the family that have different roles. A husband has a role, and the wife has a role, children have a role. Uh, there's also uh, at work, in our government, there are certain roles and functions where you uh, perhaps will have an authority. All of us have some authority here on earth. Uh, most all of us, some of us may think we don't, uh, but uh, all of us have, a, have an authority, whether it's our, our federal government or our local government, a police officer. People have authority in their functions and roles, but that has nothing to do with your value and the equality of you, uh, the big term, ontologically, you are the same, okay? So uh, Paul is making this as clear. Uh, we know from our past uh, the, the hor- horrors of slavery that occurred uh, really beginning in 1619 uh, in Jamestown. The first slaves arrived. And, uh, you know, at that time they worked a specified time, uh, whether it was seven or eight or nine, ten years, and then they were free. But then later on we see uh, in the 1700s and certainly 1800 till all the way up to 1865, uh, not 63, that's when. Uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was made, but it was 65 where slavery was totally outlawed. And we see uh, that they were owned as property. They were not deemed as human. And it's a, it's a terrible blot on that time of American history uh, for us. Uh, and this also happened, to be honest with you, happened in almost every culture that has existed. And so when we see and we think of slavery, often we think of it in those terms, but I I want to educate us a little bit later on and understand it a little bit better. Now, this letter is being written by the Apostle Paul, okay? Paul, who wrote more letters, more of the books that we have than anyone else in the New Testament. He's the principal authority 
uh, of the Christian church at this time. Uh, Peter has been one. Peter's uh, either died or is about to die at this time. Uh, but he and Paul were certainly uh, the principal leaders of the church. It's because of Paul's evangelism, because of his missionary work that we see the gospel spreading and those he trained. Uh, and then he's writing this with his, uh, with, the, with his son in the ministry that he's mentored named Timothy. So as we start this passage, we'll see I and Timothy, Timothy and me, we're, we're writing this passage. Timothy and I are writing this passage. We're writing this letter to you, this one chapter. It's the shortest letter that Paul writes. It's not the shortest letter in the Bible, but it's the shortest one that Paul writes. And uh, because Paul is in his 60s at this time, uh, he perhaps had arthritis. We know he's been beaten multiple times. And so uh, he, Timothy is writing this form and under Paul as he dictates it. And then we'll see at the end, Paul even signed it himself. <clears throat> then we come to Philemon. Now, who is Philemon? Philemon is a wealthy Christian. He's accepted Christ somewhere maybe at seven, eight, nine years before, uh, probably in Ephesus, which was a major trading center to Colossae, the, the closest major tra- trading center to Colossae. And uh, he would have certainly gone there multiple times, and he apparently heard Paul preaching, uh, came under conviction, uh, accepted Christ. And now the, the, the church of Colossae, the Colossian church, is now meeting in his house, in Philemon's house. Uh, some of you may call it Philemon, and that's fine too, by the way. Uh, in Philemon's, Philemon's house. And uh, so we see that he has some authority, and he's a believer. He's, he's a Christian. And uh, he has a great relationship with Paul. Paul has invested in him and put time into him. And so they have a very special relationship. Uh, and then we see Onesimus. Who is Onesimus? Onesimus is one of the slaves for Philemon. We don't know why, but at some point, uh, Onesimus decides, I'm getting out of this. And so he takes either something worth value or he takes money uh, for him to take a trip to Rome, which is somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 miles away. Long, long way from Colossae, okay? He's trying to get away. Why'd he go to Rome? Well, Rome is a city that's anywhere, scholars estimate, anywhere from 35 to 50% of all the people, all the population in Rome were slaves at that time, okay? And so if you're going to blend in, it's an excellent place to go. And there, while he's there, through God's sovereign will, he hears the preaching of Paul, he meets Paul, and he becomes a Christian, and Paul is in prison. We don't know if Paul is in prison right after this or during that time, but he's in, probably in house arrest. He later, later goes to a, to a regular prison. Uh, but Onesimus comes and serves him and helps him. And now Paul has, after he's heard the story, Paul is sending Onesimus back on that long, long journey. And he's writing a letter. He's going to sin with Onesimus. Matter of fact, he not only sends Philemon, he also sends, most scholars would agree, Ephesians and Colossians. Those letters are going to be taken with him. So he's going to send Onesimus back. And he's literally writing a letter to Philemon. Philemon, who is a slave owner, who most of the world are slave owners. If you are wealthy, you have slaves. And so he's going to write a letter to him. And usually, when a slave ran away, one of two things happened. Either he was beaten unmercifully and often died, or he was killed, certainly if he was a repeat offender. So there's a very stiff penalty that he would have encountered. And uh, plus, Philemon 
uh, has probably multiple slaves who are working. What is the message that he's going to send to them? And Paul, knowing all of this, sits down and writes this letter. I wonder what that must have been like for Paul as he wrote this letter. Dear Philemon, this is your brother Paul, and I'm, I'm writing you from, from prison because of my testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And your brother Timothy is also writing you. You're much to love workmen together with us. We are also writing to the church that meets in your home. This letter is also for our Christian sister, Athea. And it is for Archippus, who is a soldier together with us. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you his loving favor and peace. I always thank God when I speak of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and for all the Christians I pray that our faith together will help you know all the good things you have through Jesus Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort. Hearts of the Christians have been made happy by you, my Christian brother. So now, through Christ, I am free to tell you what you must do. But because I love you, I will only ask you. I am Paul, I'm an old man, here in prison because of Jesus Christ. And I am asking you for my son, Onesimus. He has become my son in the Christian life while I've been here in prison. And one time, he was of no use to you, but, but now he is of use to both you and me. I'm sending him back to you. It's like sending you my own heart. I would like to keep him with me. He could have helped me in your place while I am here in prison for preaching the good news, but I did not want to keep him without word and permission from you. I did not want you to to be kind to me because you had to, but because you wanted to. He ran away for you from a while, but now he is yours forever. Do not think of him any longer as a slave you own. He is more than that to you now. He's a much-loved Christian brother to you and to me. If you think of me as a true friend, then take him back as you would take me. If he has done anything wrong or owes you anything, send me the bill. I will pay it. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will not talk about how much you owe me because you know that you really owe me your life. Yes, Christian brother, I want you to be of use to me as a Christian, so Give my heart new joy in Christ. I write this letter knowing you will do what I ask and even more.
please, have a room ready for me. I trust God will answer your prayers and let me come to you soon. Epaphras says hello. He's a brother here in Christ in prison with me. And Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, who are work, workers here with me, say hello. May the loving favor of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, your brother, Paul. We're going to look at the rhetoric that Paul uses here in just a moment. It's really pretty phenomenal. But I want us to think about what Paul has asked and what the culture would have been like that he is experiencing, that he lives in, the surroundings. You know, often you'll hear people say, well, doesn't the Bible support slavery? Doesn't the Bible support polygamy, multiple wives? Wasn't that okay in the Bible times? Can I tell you this? From the beginning, let's start with polygamy. How did God create marriage? One man, one woman, the two shall become flesh. That was his ideal. Never said one man, a couple of women. Uh, that, was late, that came later, and that was because of man's sinful heart. That's why that happened, okay? Same reason with divorce. He gave divorce papers because men were leaving their wives and leaving them destitute. And, they had to ha- and God instituted this so that the women would have legal rights and that you had to take care of them. You had to make sure that they had food and shelter. And again, because of man's sinfulness, that's where polygamy came from. Matter of fact, you don't ever see polygamy by a Bible character that it doesn't cause problems. Think about it. Every time a man had more than one wife, there was always problems, okay? Where there was Jacob, Abraham, David. I mean, don't get me started with Solomon. I mean, it was always a problem, all right? And most of you are going, oh, that would be a problem at my house, okay? It was a problem, and it was not God's design, nor was it his intention. The same is true about slavery. Because of the sinfulness of the cultures all around Israel, and because it infiltrated them, and because uh, they had people coming from other nations, God, in his mercy, said, um, I know this is occurring. I know the sinfulness of your heart. This is not my design, but I'm going to regulate and make sure that they are provided and they are uh, given rights and means of support. So I think it's important for us to see that the Bible does not uh, condone it, does not support it, but it does regulate because of the sinfulness of man's heart. Now, slavery was different uh, than what we might think of in modern history. And uh, in, for the Hebrew in biblical times, uh, you often would become a slave or what we called in history an indentured servant, uh, because you were poor and you didn't have anything and you recognize, hey, if I go over here and work, they'd make a, they would make a commitment. They'd say, we would give you this much of the food. You can have this place to stay. And so often people would voluntarily uh, just be able to eat. Sometimes it would be for widows who um, couldn't care for themselves and they would come and say, I will cook your meals and I will serve for you if you will simply let me come and live and help and support me. So it was kind of, in some ways, in certain instances, for the Hebrews, uh, often as people voluntarily made the position, it was kind of their welfare system, okay? And number two, then we have debt. 
you're in such an insurmountable amount of debt that you can't get yourself out of that debt. Uh, maybe you've, t- you've bought something and you, you've put all these crops on it and you had all these labors and then the crops went bad. And the only way to take care of that is someone's uh, going to have to pay uh, or you're going to go to prison. Well, it was an act of mercy. Uh, you could, uh, as a Hebrew, sell yourself into slavery to another Hebrew and, but at the end of seven years, you had to be released. Uh, this may, we don't know, this may have been what Jacob did with Laban because he shows up, he doesn't have anything, and he says, for seven years, I will work for Rachel. Ends up being a 14-year appointment. Uh, but that's another story. So we see this happening uh, throughout the history. Uh, the main way, the primary way that people became slaves in biblical times was through war. Uh, sometimes that was warring tribes against each other. Sometimes it was warring nations. It wasn't like today where they're overseas. Everybody was on the same side of the pond, and everybody in our terms was re- relatively close. If you were two or 300 miles away, that was considered quite a distance. And so when war would occur, um, it wasn't like now. They didn't have POW camps. Uh, one of two things happened. Either they killed you, they killed all, any, especially any men, any boys, you were, you were killed. Uh, so that they didn't have to worry about an uprising or reciprocity, or you were made slaves. This was very common practice. If you remember, remember the story of David and Goliath, and what does Goliath stand up and tell David? He said, look, let, send out your greatest warrior. We don't have to have this big war. And if he defeats me, we will be what? Your slaves. But if I defeat you, you will be our slaves. Of course, David does it, and they, they don't... Uh, they kind of renege on their commitment and run away, all right, which is not uncommon. But sometimes you didn't have the choice to run away in, in actual battle and once that war was over. And so this is how most people became slaves. Uh, there's also kidnapping, but the Bible is very much against kidnapping. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, the penalty was death, and Paul talks about slave traders uh, and this act of kidnapping uh, in First Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Uh, and again, very, very strong things to say about that. And, and in the Old Testament, the penalty was death. We know that's happening today, even in the United States. Certainly a group of our people just get back, got back from India, and Matthew Harding was giving them the statistics. Somewhere around 37,000 children are uh, stolen or kidnapped every week and are shipped around the world. So it's a rampant problem in the world today. Conservative estimates say that there are 27 million slaves in the world today, and some say that would go all the way to 300 million. We don't, we don't know, uh, but it's still a problem today, and it is primarily through kidnapping. And then sometimes foreigners would give themselves up. We know the Gibeonites did that when the children of Israel came in uh, after Jericho, and they're marching, and the Gibeonites come, and they just say, hey, we will be your slaves, we'll be your servants. Matter of fact, that was one of the acts that uh, was supposed to be done before war occurred. Uh, we see in the Old Testament, one of the regulations, you can become our slaves. If you will come out and surrender, become our slaves, uh, this battle won't have to happen. Uh, but most times, people don't want to do that. And so that was the primary reason, the primary way that it happened. But for the Jews, if you were a slave amongst the Hebrews, if you were Jew, you had seven years, you were released, or at Jubilee, you were released, but many times they would say, you know what, I just want you to continue to be my master. So they would, and uh, we see it in Exodus chapter 21, you can take an anvil and have a, 
a, a nail driven through the ear, and it's a picture that I want to work with my master. I want to work for him. He is a good master. He's provided for my needs. He's provided for my family. And so we see that. So that's the Old Testament. We jump to the New Testament, and um, we see in John chapter 8, verse 53, that, that God never intended for people to stay as slaves. Uh, Clement of Rome in 96 AD said, that's the very first century, he said, we know many among ourselves have given themselves up to slavery in order that they may free others or ransom others. Many others have surrendered themselves to slavery so that uh, with the price they will receive for themselves, they can provide food for others, for family and friends. Uh, so types of slavery in the New Testament, if you were a slave, you might work in the mines and agriculture, which was an extremely difficult life. Probably had a short life expense, uh, a short life uh, experience. Uh, the gladiators were usually slaves. Tradesmen, most of the people who did trades, remember in the Roman culture, in Rome alone, uh, nearly 50% of the people there are slaves of some sort. Domestics, many, that's probably what Onesimus was. Uh, and we see that even in the white-collar society of Rome, there are slaves. There are slaves who are doctors. There are slaves who are lawyers or slaves who are accountants who take over. Remember how uh, Joseph was taking over all for a Pharaoh? That was very common in, uh, in the Roman Empire, too, for a trusted slave. You, they might be well-educated, educated through that wealthy master's home. So many of them did not want to leave. It was a, it was a job that, that put them uh, eating all they need, had all, they, all the basic necessities of life, and if they left and went out on their own, they might be forced to beg or find themselves in an even worse predicament. So uh, in the New Testament, it's not as simple to just always say uh, how horrible it was, even though it was a horrible institution. Uh, when we see in this manner, we can see not every slave was treated the same. It wasn't always the same situation and that many voluntarily put themselves in that situation, either because of debt or because of the poor, or they wanted to see their children have an education, or they wanted to become educated. So that was in the Roman Empire. Now, with that understanding, I, I want us to look at this letter, and you're going to see that Paul <clears throat> uses three forms of rhetoric in this letter. I mean, he, you heard it a while ago. He puts the pressure on. He uses something called pathos, and pathos is when you're emotionally stirred. It's when your heart is stirred. Uh, a good sermon will use all three of these. So that's pathos. Then there's ethos or ethos. Uh, and that's the ethical right to say what you're saying. Uh, I have, if you have the right because of your position, because of your education, because of your experience, I believe you based on the ethos. And then the last one is the logos. We've heard that word used term. It's because of your logic, it's because of your reasoning, because of the evidence, because uh, of the content of which you are sharing is true. A good sermon will use all three of those. Uh, and, you know, sometimes people say, boy, I, I hate it when you tell those stories. Because uh, some of us don't want to be moved. We just want to hear Logos. But the truth of it is most of us, if we only hear Logos, uh, it falls short. And so that's the principle. Uh, principally, what we want to communicate as we read the Bible is the, the Logos. But because we are human beings, our ethos and our pathos need to be stirred. And in this particular letter, it's like no other letter that Paul has written. He primarily uses pathos. That's primarily what he uses. And we're going to see it over and over again 
in this text. So if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you will bring those uh, as we start next week. Uh, matter of fact, next week I want to encourage you to come in a big, big way. Matter of fact, I want to encourage you to do something I've never asked the church to do in 12 and a half years since we started. I want you to come Saturday night and Sunday morning. I want to give you an invitation, not coercing or forcing you, but Robert Smith, who I deem as the best preacher in America, hands down. Some of you got to hear him last year. Uh, you know, I love Tony Evans. I love Charles Swindoll. Uh, I love MacArthur. I love uh, Tommy Nelson. In my opinion, they're all a B compared to Robert Smith. He's going to do a different sermon on Sunday morning, a different one on Saturday night. Saturday night, he's going to do Exodus, which is what we'll be getting into on a series. Really encourage you. I think you'd do yourself a real favor to come Saturday night and one of the services on Sunday morning. Um, I know some of you are going, are you crazy? You're lucky to have me right now. Uh, but it's not for me. Don't miss it. It's going to be great stuff. You'll learn more Bible than any sermon. I promise you, you'll, you'll heal and learn more about. He exercises these three exercises better than anyone I've ever seen, bar none. And so really encourage you to come and hear him next week. But to, this week you've got me. So Philemon chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ, and Timothy, our brothers, we know he's imprisoned either at home, probably at this point at home, and then he's about to go to a regular prison, to Philemon, our fellow worker. We talked about who Philemon and He is the slave owner of Onesimus. And Aphia, our sister, this is probably Philemon's wife, and Archippus, who is probably Philemon's son who helps Paul uh, on his mission journey, missionary journeys. We see him uh, back in Colossians as well. And the church in your house, the church of Colossae is meeting in the house of Philemon. He's probably one of the leaders, uh, certainly one of the leaders of the church. Uh, we'll see later on, Epaphras was the beginning of Epaphras. He's the one that planted it, but now he's in prison too. Um, and we see here grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus. So we're going to see at this point, we're going to see the pathos. We won't see this in any other letter that Paul writes, any other book that he writes. But notice, he says, he, he begins to persuade him by encouraging him and stirring him and saying the positive things about Philemon. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord and of all the saints. Who's a saint? a believer in Christ, Lord, Lord Jesus, and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. He's just really letting him know how much he's appreciated it. And how, how much he means and how valuable he is. And then he goes into his own ethos, Paul does. Accordingly through, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. <clears throat> we talked about position, authority. He's the same as Philemon, but he is the head of the church at this point. And certainly the head of Philemon. And spiritually, he's led him to the Lord. Accordingly, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Now, what is required? We'll see later. What, is, what he's saying is required is either you, you release him and, or you release him and fully accept him or you release him and send him back to me, okay? Uh, but uh, we continue here. He says, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, as an old man. Now, 
in our culture, that's not, not always a positive statement to be called an old man. Matter of fact, I don't like it. Uh, but in this culture, it was a sign of wisdom and authority and respect. I am older. I am your mentor. Uh, I have been your pastor, so to speak, in the past. And he says, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Because of my faithfulness, I'm in prison. And we see uh, pathos. He goes back to pathos and he says, I, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. He's calling Onesimus his child, uh, unheard of, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he, and he uses a play on words because of the word Onesimus means useful or benefit. So Paul uses a play on words here, and we actually have this parenthetical statement. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now, indeed, he's useful to you and to me. He ran away, but now he is of value to you and to me, of usefulness. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Notice the pathos that's being used here. I'm sending my heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent. Back to the ethos. I want to have your consent before I do this in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. And then he uses logos here in verse 15. For this perhaps is why he parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, and a slave is a term your Bible might use, as a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and to the Lord. He uses the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Remember what was stated by Joseph when his brothers came back uh, and they came back to, to Egypt and they find out who uh, Joseph really is and they ask forgiveness and they're crying and they're begging forgiveness. And what does Joseph say to them? He said, you know, man meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. You see the sovereignty of God. God has sovereignly taken Joseph through the slavery, through the suffering, through prison, and all the way to the ranks of second in command through God's sovereign plan. And right here, Paul is ascribing back to him, this is probably because of the sovereignty of God. So you see the logos, you see the doctrine, you see the theology given right here. And so if you consider me your partner, I, Paul, your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Wow. And if he has wronged you, uh, you see some logos here. He says, if he has wronged you at all or he owes you anything, then charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this letter with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me or even your own self. Paul says, look, uh, if I know he's probably taken something that doesn't belong to him just for him to make that journey and to sustain him. You've lost time. I will pay it back. If your problem, Philemon, is what you're financially losing, I'm going to take responsibility for it. I will write the other churches and ask them to send the money or whatever I need to do. I will take full responsibility. I know that puts you in an awkward position amongst your but I'm telling you that financially I will take care of it. It's the logos. It's the content. Yes, brother, 
I want some benefit from you. I want some usefulness from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. He has made a mammoth request. And he says this at the end. He uses his pathos again here. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will even do more than I say or more than I ask. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will graciously give them to you. Paul never leaves. He will go on uh, to lose his life here. Epaphras, who was the pastor there at Colossae, he's the one who planted the church that Philemon uh, meets in his house. He's also a prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends his dream. So your pastor and me, Paul, who've led you to the Lord because of the gospel, we're here in prison. We're sending you this message. Um, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, and Demas, and Luke. Luke, who wrote um, Acts and the Gospel of Luke, wasn't one of the original disciples, but he was one who, would, who wrote much of the New Testament. But Paul, as you see, the, the volume of Acts and the volume of Luke, the longest gospel. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. So, Paul has gone to great lengths. Matter of fact, Martin Luther said, this letter is holy flattery. Uh, and when he reads it and he looks at it, Paul, Paul didn't write anything else about it, but Paul heaps it on thick. A lot of times people say, I don't want to hear stuff that makes me feel guilty. That's the path of sometimes you need to hear it because you won't be stirred by simply reading content. So Paul ascribes to him through pathos, through who he is, and through logos. And we see that Paul completely, uh, at a minimum, undermines slavery and I believe that he's working toward emancipation. We see this by many of the early church fathers as they speak out against slavery. And if he does this, it's going to cost him because it'll probably cost... What, what does he do when his other slaves accept Christ? So this is a huge mammoth request. It's one that where Paul is at a minimum, again, subverting. And he is at a minimum uh, asking in this case, for emancipation. When he makes that quote, matter of fact, let's look at some reasons I would suggest that in Philemon. Paul acknowledges Onesimus' equality by calling him a child, unheard of. You would never call a slave your child, but he's saying, he's my child. Paul says, I'm sending back to you and sending my very heart, my emotions, my pathos, who I am. I'm sending my heart with you. This is perhaps why he departed for you, that you might have him forever. We see the theology and the sovereignty of God listed here. And Paul says Philemon's relationship is no longer that of slave, but as a brother. He's no longer your slave. He is now your brother. I'm sending him back all the way. He's coming back of his own will and his own accord because he's your brother. He's my brother. And then also, he says, receive him the same way you would receive me. He would receive Paul with honor with deep respect and great gratitude. And that's what he's telling him to do with Onesimus. And Paul tells him that he will cover all of Onesimus' debts. We don't know how he became a slave. It may be because of his debt. It may be because he couldn't pay the debt. And if you didn't pay the debt, uh, your penalty was prison. And so this was your alternative. And then Paul says, For I believe you will do more than I have asked you to do for Onesimus. What's more than I would ask? I would ask that you release him. Make him a slave no longer. 
maybe even send him back to me as a brother in Christ. But I'm asking you to do more than simply receive him, just simply forgive him, simply ask him. What could more be that you give him his freedom? I think that's the question that God is asking us today. Oh, to be said of Christians that we do more than we are asked. When Jesus said, if someone asks you to go a mile, go the extra mile. So it's so hard for us or so difficult. Many times we'll say, well, I'm, I'm serving, I'm giving, I'm trying to be faithful in church. And that's what you're supposed to do. But when we become a follower of Christ, that's the testimony. Oh, that it would be said of Rock Point Church, then we do more for the kingdom than we're asked, that we do more of what God has initiated for us than even what we're asked, which is the example of Christ Jesus, who became a bondservant, the Bible tells us, who came a slave on our behalf. You remember the movie Christmas Carol? Everyone's read the story or seen the movie. You remember at the end, Scrooge has gone through these dreams and through these dreams, he's been transformed. He has a vision of the reality and the, the difference he could make and the harm that he's caused. And you've got a road to choose. And so choose it. And so Scrooge, a man who's been against Christmas, he calls it Bahama, a waste of time, a waste of energy, simply a, commercial, a day of commercialism. Ever hear, hear people talk about that? And, and that's what, that's what it is, and so we're going to work on this day. We're not even going to recognize it. So it's the next day. It's Christmas Day, and Cratchit, who works for him, has been working for him. He works hard, and he works for very little. And he has a sick son, Tiny Tim, who he can't afford to get adequate care, who, who he can't bring enough food into. And Tiny Tim is going to die if he's not well cared for, if he doesn't receive the, the medication and the needs that he has. And so when Cratchit comes to work that next Christmas day. He's 18 minutes late, and he walks into the office, and he hears that voice. Mr. Cratchit, do you know what time it is? Yes, sir, Mr. Scrooge. It's 18 minutes after the hour has passed, but I will make this up to you. Indeed, you will. Come over here, Cratchit. I have something for you. Come here. I need to talk to you. Cratchit, I have paid you, I've been taking care of you, but there's something I must do today. Cratchit, fearing the worst, that he's going to lose his job, lose his only means of support for his family who's suffering anyway. And Scrooge says, from this day forward, I'm going to give you more. I'm going to double your pay because his life has been transformed. He doubles his pay and he gives him more than he would have even asked. At one point, Crass had asked, asked for a small raise. No, but now he's going to have his pay doubled. He's going to have his needs met. And tiny Tim is going to survive. He's going to live because of Scrooge's generosity, because of the life transformation, because he now does more than he asked. He's not just helping the poor. He's not just being a kind man. He's giving more. He's giving more than 10%. He's giving away a lot of what he has because of the transformation he's experienced. I ask you today, has God transformed your life?
Are you giving more than what's asked of you? Are you simply checking boxes? Jesus came to give his life. And Jesus said this quote six times. You've heard me say it a hundred times. More than any other quote we have in the Gospels. Jesus made this quote. He who seeks to save his life and to keep his life and to live for himself will lose life. But he who loses, he who gives it away, who gives it away in service and in finance and in help, finds life. He who's a true follower of mine will give his life away. Have you given and are you giving your life away? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time and thank you for this beautiful letter that calls upon us and teaches us the message of releasing even what we think is rightfully ours. For the truth is, every good gift comes from above. And we are to open our hands and say, God, whatever you need, I give it to you. Let that be true of us. Let us not say, I served an hour. I gave a tithe and I'm done. I attend the services. Lord, let us look to give away our very life and to serve more than we ask, to give more than we are asked, to love more than we ask, to forgive more than we think is fair. For as we do, we represent you, Christ Jesus. We become the body of Christ, representing the God of the universe. Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know you, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your spirit at this time. For those of us who know you, Lord, let us say, God, where do you need me? Let us take that card out and mark and say, I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to give. I'm ready to share. Show me. Give me the step. I'm ready to take the next step with Jesus Christ. God, I ask this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.